This episode is brought to you by Creative Edge Publicity. Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Let Fear Bounce. This is Kim Langling, your host, and I am so happy that you are spending a small part of your day today with myself and my very special guest, Robert French. He is a software developer turned actor turned author who was born in Oxford, England and was brought up in the East End of London. And at age 26, he immigrated from the UK to Canada for a couple years, and he's been there ever since. Robert is, a, is passionate about the beauty of having the right words on the page, and with every new book, his goal is to make it better than the previous one. He is a writer of seven so far Cal Rogan crime thrillers about a drug-addicted ex-cop who fights his way from living rough on the streets to being a much sought-after P.I., Robert, thank you so much for joining me on Let Fear Bounce today. Well, thank you for inviting me, Kim. I'm excited to be here. So you have a very interesting background. Just reading in that short bio, you've done a lot, sir. <laughs> so <laughs> you are a software developer turned actor turned author. Let's start with software developer and how it is that you took that and turned into an actor. How did that journey go for you? Well, that was interesting. How I, I'll just tell you how I got into software. I was uh, very good at math at school. I, I'm, my, my parents were, were very, I'm from a very poor family. My parents didn't have a lot of money. And, you know, I, I qualified to, to go to university and study mathematics, but that would have been a financial strain on the family. So, but my dad, who had an amazing mind, he said, and this is in the 1960s, he said, you know, these computers seem to be the coming thing. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so um, I, I went and uh, did an aptitude test and got hired on the spot and got into the computer business. And in those days, there were only mainframes. And uh, as an interesting aside, when I was born, there were only five computers in the world and nobody knew about them. They were the five computers at Bletchley Park in England that were decoding the German Enigma code and under the uh, tutelage of the wonderful Alan Turing. So I always say when I was born, there were five computers in the world and now I have more than five computers in my house. Right, right, right. <laughs> So that went, that started, that, well, the Bexley thing, you mentioned that I've read a lot on that and what an incredibly interesting story. Yeah. My, my, oh my my goodness. One of my best friends, his mother worked there. Um, yeah, she, uh, she, she worked there and they, um, they used women a lot because women's ability to recognize patterns so much better than men's. And uh, that's, tr that's true in the United States as well. The code breakers in the United States. There's a, there's a wonderful book, uh, and I think it became, it, it was a movie as well, about um, women code breakers uh, in the US. Um, so, uh, well, anyway, it's a big well, there's a, there's a movie. There's a movie about Betchley, the, the code breakers yes. there, and as they, the gentleman, the movie, it's about the gentleman who built yeah. that and, computer, and they all thought he was crazy. Yeah, well, I'll tell you a, a little connection there. Um, Alan Turing, who who's who was the the genius behind the uh, 
Breaking the Code. And the movie was called Breaking the Code. Mm -hmm. um, it started as a play and I have acted in that play. Um, I, uh, when, during my acting time, I, uh, I went and auditioned for the part of Alan Turing and I didn't get the part of Turing, but I got the part of the detective who arrested him in the 50s because uh, Alan Turing was gay and homosexuality in England at the time was illegal. Right. And uh, he was arrested for homosexuality. He was also, he was forced to take drugs. Yeah. Um, and he ended up killing himself. And uh, he, he put cyanide on an apple and ate an apple with cyanide on it. And that's how he killed himself. I don't know if this is true or not, and I would love to ask um, Steve Wozniak if it's true, but you know the Apple logo is an apple with a bite out of it, right. Apple computers. I think that's an homage to Alan Turing. You know, good point. Mm -hmm. It would That would be a good question to ask, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so if I ever meet Steve Wozniak, uh, I'll ask him, so... And if I ever meet him, I'll ask him too. Okay, and then call me up and let me know. And then I'll let you know. <laughs> yeah, that was a great movie, actually. Mm -hmm. I, mm -hmm. I, I loved that movie. And it was at the end, it was it was a very, I was actually, well, I was sad. I was very mm. sad. Actually, there were two movies. One, the original one was called Breaking the Code, and I was in that play. But the other one was with um, Cumberbatch, wasn't it? Yes, that's the yes. one I saw. That's the yeah, one that was also a brilliant movie. That was a, also a he great did an movie. amazing job. Uh, he's he's one of the best actors in the world. I agree. I yeah. I agree. Yeah, yeah he's well, so hey, let's get back to you. <laughs> <laughs> what little old me? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you're software developer, and we're at the transition of you turning into an actor. How did that come about? Well, it was it was funny. Uh, my in my youth, I wanted to be an actor. I was in every play when I was a, in high school. I was in every play that my high school put on, and it was an all boys school. So I have the uh, unique uh, uh, combination of having played the leading man in Oklahoma, the you know Oklahoma the musical. Mm -hmm. I've played the leading man. I've played the villain, and I've played the leading lady. <laughs> Because in our school, the boys in the junior school had to take girls' parts because it was an all-boys school. <laughs> so, well, yeah. Anyway, I'd always wanted to be an actor and read into this what you will. But after my father had been very much against me being an actor, of course, he wanted me to have a good career. And he was right. I had a great career in computers. But I, after he died... I decided I wanted to take a shot at acting and I did it part time because I didn't want to you know, jump into a, such a risky career as acting. And so uh, I did a, a lot of theatre and a couple of movies. I was uh, uh, privileged enough to do a movie uh, in which Alan Cummings starred, another amazing actor. I loved acting, but decided that I couldn't make a career of it because Acting, there's so much luck in acting. Um, no matter how skillful you are, directors are always, and I've casted, I've helped cast plays, and you're always, you've always got in your mind what the character's going to look like. And so you tend to cast based on how somebody looks. 
frequently that's a terrible error. But so I, I decided that I would continue acting for a while because I enjoyed it. But that wasn't something I wanted to take up as a full-time uh, you know, job. Where did becoming an author come into play? Okay, well, um, that was interesting. It came out of uh, a big setback in my life. I had started a, a company with a friend and we had put everything into this company. We'd raised about a million and a half dollars uh, from investors. And we, we developed a product and we needed, we wanted to market it, but we needed more investment money. And this was in 2003 when the high-tech bubble burst and we just couldn't get any money. So we ended up, we had to shut our doors. So there I was without a job, without much money. And so I did what all, tech, all good techies do when something like that happens, is you look for consulting work and contracting work. So I, I remember this particular day, it was in February or March 2003. And I spent the whole day on the phone talking to people and, you know, trying to find projects and, or just learning what was going on in the market. And at about three o'clock, I put the phone down. Uh, well, I can't do that anymore. <laughs> so I, I got this idea for a book in my head. So I opened a Word document and started writing. And I wrote until three in the morning. I don't think I've ever written since then for that condensed amount of time and so many words. And I thought, wow, that was amazing. I want to do more of this. And so that's actually how it all started. Fortunately, I did get contracting work to do. And one of my contracts indirectly got me writing the book that could actually be published. I, I wrote parts of one, four different books and I wrote a fifth complete novel, but it was rubbish. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but um, I was contracting for a, uh, a software, a small software company and their offices were, you know, very inexpensive, inexpensive offices in the dodgy area of Vancouver. And every day as I walked to their offices, I used to walk past the, this alley. And the alley, it still freaks me out when I walk past there, was just teeming with drug addicts. You'd see people sitting there shooting up. Uh, they, would, they used it as their, their bedroom, their kitchen, their washroom, everything. And it was really awful. And I had this idea in my head what must it be like to wake up in that alley, you know? How, how must that feel? And I'd met an editor who had helped me realize that my novel was rubbish. Uh, she was very nice about it. Oh, she was wonderful. Um, she just told me things that were right and things that were wrong. <laughs> anyway, I, I said to her, yeah, I keep going past this alley. And she said, well, who would you like to wake up in that alley? And I thought, well, lawyer would be fun, wouldn't it? But, uh, <laughs> um, and I thought businessman. And then I thought, you know what would be kind of ironic would be if a cop woke up in that alley. And so it had to be an ex-cop. And so that's how Cal Rogan, who is the protagonist of my books, that's how he came about. And, and that alley was such a kind of a personal experience 
for me that when I started writing, I was I found myself writing in the first person oh. and in the present tense, which is 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 quite unusual. And uh, I know it, it actually puts off some readers. They don't like the fact that it's first person, present tense. But for me, I think it's probably the actor in me. It puts me into the head of the, each character. And you know, e each chapter has a, head, head, a subheading saying which character is currently speaking. But it puts me into the head of, the, of each character as I write. So instead of saying, uh, he, he woke up in an alley. I woke. I, I I'm way. I'm waking up. Where am I? I'm in an alley. I don't use any trite words like that, but you, you right. get the point. Yeah. So that doing that consulting project that took me through that part of town was amazing. Uh, it in many ways changed my life. I well, changed my life because I became a, a writer, and you know there are now seven books. One of the things that that it did is it changed my attitude about drug addiction. That's heavy. Yeah, it is. Uh, and uh, because I, I did a lot of research about addiction, <laughs> I had one fantastic experience. I, I met a guy who ran an organization called VANDU, which is Vancouver Drug Users Association. And it was for, for drug addicts to go to and get help. And he was a, a recovering addict himself. And he walked me through the downtown east side of Vancouver where all the drugs happen. And he pointed out how drug deals go down and pointed out, see that guy, that guy's a steer. He's taking that person to the person who's gonna collect his money, then he'll take him to the person who's gonna give him the drugs. You know, it was just a, a complete eye-opener. Um, oh, I bet, I yeah. bet. I talked to a lot of people. I took courses about drug addiction as well. And it was uh, it was just uh, uh, fascinating. And, and it is an ongoing problem worldwide, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. definitely an ongoing problem. So you walking past that alley, it was like almost a visceral thing for you mm -hmm. in a change of your mindset and how you saw things and thought about things. And then this story was born and your your character was born and you've got what did you say? Seven books now mm -hmm. with this, with this gentleman, Cal Rogan being the main mm -hmm. character throughout all of them. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. how, um, how long do you see this series going? <laughs> I paraphrase um, Charlton Heston. Um, I will keep writing until they pry my computer out of my cold dead hands. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I was wondering, do you have an offshoot story? Or an I do. Oh, okay. Tell us. Yeah. More. Yeah. Um, uh, Cal, Cal Rogan has a daughter who in the first book is five years old. And uh, in the current book is 12. And um, she wants to follow in her father's footsteps and be a detective. So I'm, I'm writing a series and I've started the first book. Uh, it's uh, set in the year 2044. And she is a seasoned detective with the Vancouver Police Department. And the first crime she has to solve is a crime that could not be, it's a murder, but it's a murder that could not be committed today because, technology, because it's a result of advancing technology. And of course, my, my computer background, I've, you know, I've got some fairly 
decent opinions as to where <laughs> technology is going. So I'm really enjoying uh, that book. It's, it's only partly written. Um, I'm hoping that I can get it out by the end of the year. But I'm also working on the next Cal Rogan book, which is uh, you know high priority. But uh, I'm having a lot of fun with that. And, well, it sounds uh, like it. It sounds like it. you've yeah. got a lot going on in your brain that all these different characters and stories and such. And it's yeah. I like how you you it seems as if you you truly fall into it, into the story and into the characters. As you said, you're you know, you're you you're writing in first person. Mm -hmm. So it's those characters are part you, mm -hmm. even though your yeah. lifestyle might not have anything to do with what your characters, but you're very involved in in your characters' lives. And I, I've yeah. always found that fascinating with authors. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I've got little stories in my head all the time and I can, characters just pop up. They just show up mm -hmm. and you're like, oh, well, hello, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and when you talk to others that, that aren't authors or just aren't interested in writing or anything like that, they, it's hard for them to understand how that happens. You know, and, or they look at you like, oh, you're just a little crazy then, aren't you? I think, well, I think every author is to a point. Yeah, I think so. I think so. My, my two favorite characters in my books, one of them just popped up. Uh, his name's Ghost and his buddy is named Tommy. And they're two alcoholics who live on the streets. And Cal uses them sometimes for surveillance and, you know, for different things. And I love these two guys. And uh, I've, you know, I've written chapters from the point of view of both of them. Um, and one of them, one of them is, is the kind of the, the leader of the two. And the other, he's not very bright, but he actually can quote Latin. You know, so all these things, it's funny how things pop up but right. I just love these two characters and a lot of my readers have commented about the, these two and they're always fun to put in the books and it must be fun when you come up with these characters and you find the quirks that they have mm -hmm. so those quirks those characteristics is that something that's just strictly from your head or are you pulling that from people that you know or people that you work with or something within your own your own realm all of the above. All, All of the, the above. above. Yeah. yeah. At one time in my life, I'm not an alcoholic, uh, but at one time in my life, I used to drink quite a lot. And I thought about, you know, I've, I've got to ease this up a bit. You know, I don't want to end up, I have a number of friends who are alcoholics. Um, I don't want to end up as, as an alcoholic, and though it doesn't actually happen that way. But, and so it's, it's very interesting when I put myself in the head of, this guy Ghost, who's an alcoholic who lives on the streets. Um, and at one point, Cal offers to pay him to go through rehab and to, to get off the streets, and, but he doesn't want to. The streets are his life. He doesn't, he, he doesn't know how to function anymore in, in normal society. And that's true of quite a few people living on the streets. They don't, they don't want to change. There was a gentleman, and as you were talking, I, I had this mental picture. I used to work for the state government years ago. And in the parking garage, it was two levels. And so the stairwell wasn't closed in glass. And during the day, especially in the wintertime, 
when the sun was shining, that stairwell would be very warm, very toasty. And there was a gentleman that was there every day and he was a homeless man. Now, was he an addict of any sort? I don't know, but I would often be walking by him going down the stairs if I was leaving the building for lunch and then passing him again when I was going back up the stairs. And a few of us at work decided, you know, winter's coming and winters can be pretty darn harsh where I live. And so we were all, you know, and he wouldn't talk to anyone ever. And I would say, good morning, hello, good afternoon, every day. Most times he wouldn't acknowledge you. Sometimes you'd get a quick nod. But there were a few of us that got together and said, you know what, it's going to be so cold. We have no idea if he's actually under a roof anywhere. So one gentleman had a Carhartt jacket and I had a pair of um, really heavy duty, warm leather gloves. And so we all got together and we all just put this packet together and they, I was voted to be the one to approach him. And so I very cautiously and gently approached him because I certainly don't want to hurt anyone's pride and just said, you know, if this is something you would accept, it would make us very happy. And if it's helpful to you, we would like to, you know, offer you these items. And he took them, graciously accepted them. And he said, but I don't want anything else and I don't need anything else. And that was very profound to me. This gentleman, and he was always writing. He was always writing. He always had tablet paper, always. And he kept it in an old uh, potato chip bag, like a family size potato chip bag. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm assuming <laughs> because it was waterproof. Mm -hmm. you know yeah so he had all these pages in there and he was always writing always always and I often wondered what he was writing about what his background was but he did not want to he didn't want to accept charity and he quite honestly said I don't need anything mm -hmm. and that always struck stuck with me because I don't know if I was in that position if I would be so content with it Mm -hmm. it's an interesting well, an interesting conundrum <laughs> yeah it is uh, at one point during my um uh, you know after the the software company had closed down and you know i was writing and, and trying to get contracts i went through a very tough financial period and and i realized that i was no less happy you know, I wasn't living on the streets. You know, I was not that far away from it. <laughs> um, and But I realised I was happy. And I've often wondered if I were living on the streets, how I would handle that. And I know that there people have experimented with that. Um, but it, it's it's a bit difficult to experiment with it when you know in the back of your mind you've got a, a home to go back to. Right. But um, uh, I think contentment is something that you have or don't have. Um, and uh, I suspect that if you don't have it, you can learn to have it. But, um, uh, there, I mean, there's a study by um, uh, Danny Kahneman, who is a, uh, or was a um, Nobel Prize winning e economist. And he did a lot of studies to show that uh, money did not bring happy happiness. 
beyond a certain point. And I think his, his point was, I think, once you had $60,000 a year, extra money didn't make you happier. And he did extensive studies of people. Um, I, I found that kind of interesting. Yeah, that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. And if I think about the people that I know, because the majority of people that I know where I live in a very rural community, if you make $60,000 a year, that's a really good income mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where yeah. I live. Yeah. And then you see, of course, there's all different levels, but you see the ones that are a little higher level, you know, for this area. And you notice that their, their, their mindset and their views of things are much more jaded. Mm -hmm. And then you've got just, and I just say the normal folk, you know, yeah. <laughs> that don't have as much because you don't need all of that. No. It's, it's a want versus mm -hmm. a need. Yeah. But if you've got all you need and you can maintain and you are content, then I think happiness follows. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, in terms of owning things, I've become a minimalist. I, I you know, when I went through my tough financial time, I, uh, I, I lived for a while in one room in in people's house they lent, they rented out rooms and there was a communal kitchen and at that point i got rid of so much stuff and since then i have not reacquired stuff yeah i i love cars i'd love a, <laughs> i'd love i'd love a ferrari but it wouldn't make me any happier you know if i had a ferrari it would be fun to drive you know have the have the roof down on, on a nice sunny day like today is here. Um, that would be great, but it wouldn't make, you know, it would make me happy for a moment, but it wouldn't make me overall any happier. You know, one thing, okay, what an interesting little rabbit hole we fell into. Yeah, here. yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As you're talking about, you know, you'd like a Ferrari and, you know, you're minimalist and you got rid of a lot of things. And I was just sitting there thinking how hard it would be for me to get rid of all of my books that I have. Mm -hmm. I love yeah. reading. I'm an avid reader. I think most authors are. But I have, I've accumulated quite a few. And I know that when I'm purging, it's how difficult it is for me to get rid of books. Other things clothes dishes whatever household items i really don't have a problem getting rid of that stuff i mm -hmm. struggle to minimize my books <laughs> yeah that's the that's the hard one I, uh, I what i did with i got rid of lots of books um lots and lots of books and i said if i want to reread them i'll get them on kindle but i've got some books that for example my favorite book of all time is the grapes of wrath by John Steinbeck. And that book, I could, you know, that book I, I have to keep as a book. It's a, actually, it's got several of his stories in there. It's got uh, of, mice of, man, of Mice and Men and uh, a couple of others. It's a, it's a terrific book. I have a book that I was, that I won as a prize at school, The Complete Works of Shakespeare. And that, you know, I can't give that away. But I gave away a lot of books and it was hard. It was hard. 
that you always uh, there's always those few you just can't let go of yeah that's right that's right yeah <laughs> my my few that that consists of uh, a big rubbermaid tub full <laughs> <laughs> well that's that's good that, they were, that was just those you know 20 to 30 i just couldn't let go yeah yeah i, I got, have, I have favorite ones that I'll read and I love them. It's the, the kind of book you just fall into, into mm, it. Yeah. And when it ends, you look up and you're going, oh, oh, and you've forgotten, you've forgotten where you're at. Those books I keep and I will usually pull them out once a year and reread them. And it's just so nice to have that smell of paper and yeah. hear in the paper as you turn the page, that little rustle it makes. There's just yeah. a, whole, a whole experience with it. I know, I know. For me, anyway. <laughs> well, but I, I love, I love reading on Kindle. Um, you know, it always remembers where I am, and I usually am reading more than one book at a time. It always remembers where I am in the book. And I have yeah. hundreds of books yeah. on my Kindle. I have yeah. Kindle Unlimited, so that yeah. to me, the angels sang when that came about. <laughs> yeah. I, I just, I was like Kindle Unlimited. I could read as many as I want. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I, I put all my books on Kindle Unlimited and uh, I, yeah, I love it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. Well, wow. This has been a really fun conversation. I love how, how the twists and turns happen in conversations. Yeah. We do have to wrap it up. We've, we've went, we've, we've reached our time, <laughs> but this has been awesome. An awesome conversation. Thank you so much for being my guest today on Let Fear Bounce. This is just, it's been very fascinating and eye-opening in, in many ways. So thank you. Well, thank you for, for having me. I've really, really enjoyed it. It's great. And we're going to have to have you back again sometime. I would love that. I would love that. Awesome sauce. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, everybody out there listening, thank you once again for tuning in to another episode of Let Fear Bounce. You can listen each Wednesday. A new episode pops up. I am your host, Kim Langling of the show, of course, Let Fear Bounce. Everybody out there, be well, stay well, and be blessed.